This is the Endurance Church Podcast with Pastor Anthony Bass. At Endurance Church, our goal is to live well and finish strong by becoming faithful disciples of Christ. We do this through loving, disciplined, Bible-based teaching, encouragement, and care. For more information about our ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. And now, today's message. Amen. Resurrection Month is, for most churches, one of the uh, most exciting times of the year. And uh, it's no different for us at Endurance Church. I was going to say Resurrection Church. Maybe that's somebody's church plant here. That could be you. (laughs) Um, But this month is exciting. Why? Because this month God has proven to the world that he's faithful, that he's credible. God kept his word. For over 4,000 years, a promise went forth that God was going to send the Messiah, and he sent Jesus, and Jesus came. God is faithful. The challenge we have every single day is continually trusting God despite the disappointments, the ups, the downs, the ins and outs of life. But we can always look back to the cross, and we know that God is not only faithful, he's loving. He's good. He's a gracious God. And that's also part of the resurrection month. But um, last week we were talking about how um, I was at Leo's wedding. And Leo was trying to tell me... (laughs) I was at Leo's wedding, right? Remember from last week? Anybody here last week? Yeah, yeah. So I was at Leo's wedding, right, Leo? No, no. Are you, are you sure, Leo? Okay. So we have this disagreement, right? And I'm sure I was at his wedding, but he keeps saying I wasn't, all right? So I don't know when the debate, how it's going to go. I wasn't schooled in rhetoric and debate. He may be better than I. I don't know. He likes the Bears. I like the Vikings. I may discredit his testimony a little bit. Nevertheless, we'll try to get this worked out. But the truth is I wasn't at Leo's wedding. I would have loved to have been there, but I wasn't. And because I wasn't at Leo's wedding, he could easily refute my testimony. Just one person. It just takes one man to say, you know what, that's not true. And as a result, I'm discredited. I'm proven to be false. This is the beautiful thing about our resurrection month. Um, He saw that ESPN going on. (laughs) But this is the beautiful thing about our faith, that God was trying to solidify this testimony. He was trying to make it, in a sense, 100% credible, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ was really resurrected. Because if Jesus Christ had not been resurrected, then our faith is in vain. This is a false faith. It's a bunch of myths. But the fact, the fact, the empirical fact, based upon this scientific method, that Jesus Christ was resurrected, we have tangible historical reason to hope. Anybody plan on watching the movie, The Case for Christ? There have been a couple of people who have already watched it. I've heard great reviews. I think it's a a movie. Hopefully, if you have people who are kind of on the fence, you take them to that movie. Because he goes point by point defending Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. We have historical evidence of a man named Jesus Christ. We also have witnesses who weren't even Christians who say there was a man named Jesus Christ. Some say he was a magician. But no one does this. No one refutes these 500-plus eyewitness testimonies of Jesus Christ, which happened 40 days before, after his resurrection. So 40 days after his resurrection, we have 500 plus people who say they saw Jesus Christ with their own eyes. Where are the people who would refute these testimonies? We don't have them. We don't have anybody who goes to say, Mary Magdalene, you didn't really go to the tomb. You weren't really there, girl. You're with me. We were going shopping. Stop lying. We don't have that. We don't have anybody talking to the disciples saying you all weren't really at the sea and seeing Jesus. You didn't jump in the water. That wasn't true. We don't have any other written, in a sense, documents that refute what happened. God is trying to show you without a shadow of a doubt that you could trust that Jesus Christ was resurrected. And because of that, we have reason to hope, historical, empirical, hope. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And because of that, man, we have a living hope because one day he's going to come back. And when he comes back, all those people who 
have put their faith, trust, and confidence in Jesus Christ, who trusted the words of Jesus Christ, the character of God, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we hear these words, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We can trust God. I got a quote. We'll jump into the sermon. It says, Passover and Easter are the only Jewish and Christian holidays that move in sync like the ice skating pairs we saw during the Winter Olympics. Quote is anonymous. What will we cover? Uh, we cover week one, we cover trusting that God's seed will win the war. Today, we're going to talk about trusting that God has made a way to save you from death and obey his instructions so that you'll be protected. Week three, we're going to talk about developing the type of trust in God that even if he could leave you, you will still trust in him. And lastly, week four, we're going to talk about rejoicing because of Jesus' selfless sacrifice. Anybody know we're having a Passover meal this coming Friday? Anybody heard that? We'd love for you to register. Let me just say this. There is free food. (laughs) Like, that's a no-brainer, right? You can eat for free and learn about God. That's a win-win. It's our hope that you will come out and learn about this uh, sacred meal. And hopefully, uh, you can bring people who don't know Christ or are on the fence, as I say, or just who are inquiring about God. It's a great, in a sense, feast of the Jewish faith, and it hopefully will one day kind of matriculate back into the Christian faith to some degree. We have something like it right now called communion, but my hope is that we can express some of the details of it that will help you understand not only the historical event of the Passover, but the future event of the Passover that one day is coming for us all. Here we go. Any thoughts, comments, questions, additions, subtractions? Let's jump in this. So for me... I, um, I have had struggles in my faith regarding uh, obeying God. I remember as I grew up in my faith, I was always challenged when it come to obeying God. Because I thought when I was growing up that, well, you didn't have to obey God because God's grace covered you, right? Like, I could just do what I want and God's still there. He, God has to do it because he has to keep his word. So God is good and loving. That means I could do whatever I want, even... Even if he tells me what to do now, don't do it. He's still loving. He's still good. There'll be no consequences. But as I grew in my faith, I come to realize the point of this faith is trusting God. And to trust God is to what? Obey him. And the fact that you can't do what God says or you won't do what God says is the evidence that you genuinely don't trust him. I hear, I continually communicate that faith itself is not communicated the way it usually is in English Bibles. Most people make faith like this big muscle. And the Greek word is pistis. And this word of faith is, is not used correctly. And most people think, okay, right now I know my muscle's not, but you don't got to joke on me. I'm just trying to say I haven't been in the weight room a long time. But nevertheless, most people try to teach faith that you don't have enough faith. So you need to get in there and just have your faith expand to get bigger and bigger. And if your faith is big enough... You can get God to do whatever you want him to do. And that philosophy is really called sympathetic magic. What that means is if you had a God and a, really we're talking about foreign gods, idol worshiper. If you had a different God, you could do a sacrifice or you could do some type of worship in a sense, effort. You can do some type of worship, mm, um, sacrifice. And when you do it, you, in a sense, obligate that God to respond. So if you went to Baal and you sacrificed your kids to Baal, Baal was obligated to respond to you. Because what? You did what he he asked. But we find the Christian God is not that way. God doesn't respond out of obligation. God responds out of love. God loves you. And just like I love my kids, when they ask me for something, you know what? I'll do it most of the time. But if I see it, they are abusing the ask. Sometimes I'll say, you know what? No, no, thank you. And their response to my no shows their maturity. And God wants us to be mature and grow. 
And as we grow in maturity, God has an expectation on us because our response to the no's and yeses reveals to the world how good God is. If God says no when we throw a tantrum, then you know what? We're not really that mature. And then people will question, well, is your God really that awesome, bold, brave? Is he really all sovereign and great? Because it doesn't seem like your response is any different than the rest of the world's. God is trying to conform our character into the image of Jesus Christ. And what God wants us to look at is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, temperance, meekness, faith. These are the evidences that you have God's Spirit in you. And these aren't just, in a sense, ours. These are God's characters, attributes. We talked about last week how in the garden, they were given one command. And what was that? Don't do what? Just one. Don't eat of that tree. However, Satan tempted them, caused them to doubt God. And because they doubted God, they ate. One day we'll talk about, in a sense, why we can talk about the dynamics. It's a different conversation for a different day. But today we know they doubted and ate, and then the fall of humanity happened. Today we're going to talk about a similar theme about trusting God. We find ourselves here in Egypt, and we see nine plagues have just happened. In seminary, we talked about these different plagues, and I didn't know at the particular time, but each plague represented a revolt or rebellion against a specific God of Egypt. Every single one was, in a sense, overthrowing or subverting an Egyptian God. God was not only fighting against these principalities and powers, but he was also, in a sense, revealing to the world that he was God. God got more glory because of the overthrow of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel than he did over almost any other thing throughout all the Bible. Because of Israel's destruction, God got glory. We know the Jews were delivered and we know all the things that happened regarding the Red Sea, and then he went to Mount Sinai, and then Ten Commandments, and then the Baal. We know all those things. But here, something very particular happens in chapter 12. Does everybody have chapter 12 in their Bible or on their phone? Let's jump in really quickly, and let me pray first. Father God, I ask you to help me right now communicate your word quickly, effectively, in a way that we hear it and respond in a way that gives you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And it says here in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Why is that significant? Because the Jews were located where? In Goshen. And what's interesting is every one of the nine plagues that happened before this, the Jews didn't have to do Nathan. That means nothing in West Virginia language. They, the Jews didn't have to do anything. There was no participation, no assistance, no cooperation. They just sat there and watched God move every single plague. They were happy because none of those things happened to them. And God spared them each and every time. The Jews are like, wow, this is awesome. God is amazing. God is powerful. Wow. But now things change. Remember, they had been in slavery for 430 years. And now after 430 years, they're hearing that there is a God who loves them, who cares for them. There is a God who is going to deliver them, who's going to overthrow Egypt and the Egyptians. And bring them into freedom. And now, Moses and Aaron hear something from God that changes everything. In verse 2 it says, this month shall be the beginning of months. This is very interesting. We understand the meal that's about to happen. He's about to explain and describe the Passover. This meal is so important that their calendar changes because of it. This meal here represents a new beginning for them for life. In the Jewish calendar, this is the beginning of each year. Some people have this argument that catechism for the Jewish faith is their calendar. That through their calendar, they learn about God, their faith. They learn how to walk in hope because every single holy day and the Jewish faith represents something of a historical significance and also of a future hope. Here, they're beginning to understand God's purpose and plan for the people based upon this meal. 
And here they understand this month is the beginning of the months. This represents a new start, a fresh start, a new beginning, almost like being born again. This is the symbolical significance of this meal. That before this event, it's almost like they did not have life. But after this event, after this deliverance, they are new. Some of you understand the term being born again. Some of you understand how you were when you were in your sins. Some of you understand what it's, be, what it's like to be a spiritual zombie. Oh, I threw a zombie out there. I've never referenced a zombie before because I've never found a way to, but now today I feel happy because I found a way to throw it out there. Before you are saved, it's like you are a zombie. You're the walking dead. Oh, that's the name of a TV show. I've never watched it, but I'm just throwing it out there because it fit. And if you continue in that way in life, there's an eternal consequence. You are dead, separated from God. And because you're separated, there is no hope until you put your hope in Jesus Christ. Here, God is setting the spiritual significance of this event. This month shall be your beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. God is changing their calendar based upon this event. Don't minimize its significance. Imagine if this day was the beginning of the year, not January. Imagine how different our perspective of life would be. Now, we know in Babylon, they had a different beginning of the year than they did in Canaan. That's another story for another time when I talk about how some of the festivals were connected to a moon orbit. Others were connected to a solar orbit. So whether it's a lunar orbit or a solar orbit, we're not going to talk about that. I get confused because I get confused when I try to think about both of them. Today, we're going to talk about how this month, this event represents the new beginning for the Jewish people. And not only their new beginning, but hopefully you understand it represents yours. In verse 3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Now, remember, they have not done one thing in this whole process. God has done it all. And now they're getting commands from God. They have to do this. They have to take a lamb on what day? The 10th. This is significant. Most scholars believe that this 10th day is the exact same day that Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. See, when this lamb was taken, it was, it was in a bunch of other, lamb, in other sheep. And, and they would go and they have to find one sheep for their house. Through all the sheep, just one. And that sheep, that one lamb was significant for that group of people, that home. And it says here, according to the house of the father, a lamb for a household. Listen to this. It says, and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it According to the number of persons of the, excuse me, number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. This is interesting. Why didn't he say, if your household is too big, you should get two lambs? He didn't say that. He said, if your household is too small, you need to connect with somebody else. The significance is... The one lamb is sufficient. There's no need for anything else. You only need one lamb. And that one lamb will meet every need. We have a lamb. There was one lamb. Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is sufficient. We don't need to have him come back and do it again. Jesus Christ died one time, and that one sacrifice is enough. It says, your, uh-oh, here are my um, Bible scholars. I notice a progression. 
I love progressions because they're a key. I'm going to skip ahead and skip back. We're going to be all over the place, but this is so awesome, all right? Look at this first. It says, uh, and if the household is one. Okay, look at this word right here. What's that word say right there? A lamb. You, you know this is going to be good. Not because of me, because God did this, okay? Because I'm horrible, but God is awesome. But look at that word. What does that say? Indefinite article. It's a a lamb. Go into all the land. You're on a hill. You're finding up your lamb in the pen. You, you find a lamb. And get that lamb. Now look at what it says here in verse 5. What does that say? Your lamb. Wait a minute. A lamb has just turned into your lamb. A lamb is no longer just a lamb. Now it's your lamb. Everybody with me? But I have something even better. See, if that's all your brain goes to, sometimes you miss the point because sometimes I do too. Because that's all I thought. I said, like, oh, that's awesome. There's these two different definitions. There's these two different instances. And there's two. Oh, I hadn't had enough coffee. The specificity is killing me right now. There's two different distinctions between a lamb and your lamb. But there's something even else in here. Look at here. The lamb. Now let me play this out. It goes from a lamb before you have it. And now you have it in your house and it turns into what? The lamb. And then after a while, the lamb turns into your lamb. You see, Jesus was a person, a messiah. He was just one dude out there amongst many other dudes. And then you brought him in. You, you examined him, and he turned into the Messiah. You realize he's the one. He's the one that God sent. And then after you accepted him, after he, in a sense, has been validated, he's the one. He turns into your lamb. It's not just any lamb they're talking about here. It's referencing ultimately the Messiah. This progression is trying to show you that what was impersonal, distant, eventually becomes something very intimate. Jesus Christ at one time was distant from you. He was just one person in all the world, and you got to know him, and he became the Messiah. And then you spent time with him. You got to know him. You fell in love with him, and he became your Messiah. Everybody got that? All right, let me go back real quick. I'm sorry. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to the, each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. It means everybody has to eat off that one lamb, and if there's not enough people, you have to go to another house, and all of you all eat. You just have to take smaller portions. And now we jump here. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. This is significant because this lamb had to be what? With no deficiencies. It can't have any rips, tears. It can't have anything that, in a sense, is deformed. It has to be without blemish. It's, it's supposed to be signifying sin. Jesus Christ, when he came into the temple, he said what? Which of you here can convict me of sin? Which of you can say I've messed up? I've sinned against the Father. No one could. He was approved as perfect. Here, this lamb was an unfamiliar lamb. I, I, well, one time I, I got a dog, and, and my parents, they, they, they got a dog for my sister, and we brought the dog home. And I, in our family, we're, we're not really good with uh, animals, and the name of the dog was called Roxy. And uh, it was my sister's dog. And I didn't really care for Roxy because I, I, I got a water bed. So my sister got a dog. I got a water bed. I'm like, I'm winning off this deal. But over time, I started to what? Fall in love with Roxy. 
I started to give Roxy chocolate. And you know you're not supposed to do that, right? <laughs> I didn't know that. I was giving, I thought I was being nice to give her M&M and the dog and just using the bathroom. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm killing the dog, right? So eventually I got straightened up and now I'm taking care of Roxy. But I was training Roxy to be, a, you know, a boxer and Roxy was not very good at it. Then eventually Roxy got sick. And Roxy, uh, one day I came home and Roxy was gone. I didn't know what happened to Roxy, but my dad had Roxy put to sleep. When I realized Roxy wasn't coming back, I was weeping. No! I remember Roxy's first day coming into the home, little puppy, trying to get up the stairs, falling every single step. Had all these great memories of Roxy sitting on the edge of my bed, wanting me to give her some more (laughs) M&Ms. And then Roxy was gone. This is kind of what's happening here. They have this impersonal lamb that they bring in the house for three days. And during these three days, they grow fond of this lamb. They get to spend time with it and feed it and love it, hug it and kiss it, and probably give the lamb a name like Gus. They love Gus. Gus is such a good lamb. But on that fourth day, what happens to Gus? Gus has to be sacrificed. Imagine the heartbreak. Imagine the little kids are like, Daddy, why? Remember, at this time, they have no concept, no understanding of sin at all. They don't even know what's going on. They just know that this God is talking to them. This God that is, in a sense, wiping out all of Egypt is giving them commands through Moses and Aaron. They are probably dazed and confused. And now they've brought this lamb in, and now they got to kill it? What? No way. It says, you may take it from the sheep or goats. It says, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. They got the lamb on the 10th day. And now on the 14th day, the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it. At twilight. I didn't watch the movie Silence of the Lambs. I'm sorry. I watched the movie Silence of the Lambs. I didn't watch the rest of them. It scared me. But I I don't know how lambs scream. The type of noises they make. But imagine what happened on this night. There are probably some estimates say 250,000 lambs being sacrificed almost at the same time, at twilight. Imagine how horrified the people are at this sight. What is going on? What kind of God is this? We have to kill this lamb. They don't understand the significance. They're just asked to obey, to trust. Seven, it says, and they shall take some... of the blood, and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So they have fallen in love with his lamb. Now they kill it, and they got to take some of his blood and put it on the doorposts. Now blood is running down the door. And I'm sure people are like, what is going on here? Remember, this is the first time they're asked to obey. This is all new to them. They don't have the Bible to go to and say, look, this is why we're doing this. They're just told to trust God. What is their trust based upon? Well, look at all the plagues he has performed. He's overcome nine of the ten major Egyptian gods. There was a promise that he deliver them. And remember Joseph and his promise to take his bones out of Egypt. And now based upon this information, they're told to trust him and to obey. And I'm sure there's some tough discussions that are happening that night between mom and daughter, between the dads and sons. What is going on? That's probably what I would say. This is nasty. And we go on. 
It says, uh, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. In verse 7 it says, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of the house where they eat it. Now verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh on that night. You're like, come on. Gus. No, I'm not going to eat you. I refuse. Right? That's how I would be. Roxy, no, I'm not going to do it. But they have to obey. They have to trust him. They're probably confused. They probably want to know why. They still have to obey despite not having all the answers. And it says, roast in the fire. With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with the water, but roast in the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails or intestines. It's kind of like eating chitterlings. Nobody? Okay. Uh, <laughs> leave you alone. And 10, it says, you shall let none of it remain until the morning, and what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. They can't save any of this. They can't store it. They are killing Gus. Now they're cooking Gus. Now they're eating Gus. And they can't save any of Gus. They have to burn what's left over. Oh, Gus is completely consumed by the fire. I'm sure there's a lot of questions. A lot of people probably having a hard time with this. And I guarantee you what? There were some people that did not go through with it. Right? There were some people like, I'm not going to do that. The kids screaming, that's, that's not right. We shouldn't have to do that. We should do it the way we want to do it. We have to do anything else. The rest of the time, why do we have to do this? I'm going to do it my way. Who does Moses think he is? Who does Aaron think he is? But listen to this. And 11, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He's not saying we got to do all this stuff to Gus. He's saying as we eat it, we have to do it quickly. So I don't know, there's, there's a term in the Bible that says guard up your loins or gird up your loins. What it means is they used to have like long tunics or cloaks. And whenever they were about to fight or do anything really significant running-wise or to be very mobile, they would have to take their, the bottom, I'm not going to call it a skirt, but you understand, almost like a kilt. But they would take it and pull it up and they would tie a belt around it because they needed to move quickly. So what he's saying is as you eat... Make sure you're prepared to run. Don't sit there and have this, you know, oh, I'm not going to talk about my wife too much right now. But my wife and I eat at different paces. She, uh, um, I eat rather quickly. <laughs> when I eat, I don't need to have much on TV. I don't need to have quiet in the house. I don't need, I mean, the kids could be flailing all over me. I mean, I can, I can eat. I can eat. Can you get up and change the baby's diaper? Yes, babe. I can change the baby's diaper while I'm eating. I have been known to eat spaghetti and still change a, a number two diaper and come back and still be able to rock it. Like, I'm, I'm a pro. I have six kids. Anybody out there like this? Anybody? I see you. Don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> I see you. I can, I can do it. But my wife is completely different. When she eats, the atmosphere has to be prepared. The food has to be just right. Very hot. I go to the microwave four or five times. Babe, it's not hot enough. Can you take it back to I'm like, Rrr, I, I, I throw a fit. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm like, I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> Put it over two minutes, two and a half. 
get that thing hot. I don't want to go back to the microwave. And then she just she has a she needs a different type of atmosphere to eat. Here, there's no peace at this meal. Not peace in the sense that God's not in control, but it's supposed to be a sense of urgency. Because something's about to happen that night. And many of you know what's going to happen. What happens? It says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land, both man and beast. And against all the gods, I will execute judgment from the Lord. So think about this. Something's now about to happen in Goshen. For the first time, something's about to happen to the area where the Jews were. And they have to be prepared. This angel of death is about to pass through and wipe out every firstborn in the household. Not only firstborn child, but firstborn animal. And if they didn't trust and obey, they would be judged too. Their lives are at stake right now. See, this is the part I love about the Bible. This is why I keep saying trust. Because they had to trust God here. This trust thing ain't new. The law has not even been given yet. This is before the law. And the people who make it past this scenario through this night are the ones that trusted and obeyed the voice, the words of God. Let me tell you what. There were Egyptians probably watching, right? They were probably like, what are they doing? Let's... Let's try to copy it. Let's try to do what they're doing. Because they had, at that time, full knowledge that their God was a powerful God. They knew it. And there were probably, sadly, I said, some Jews who probably like, man, I'm not going to do that. That's barbaric. We're better than that. Not understanding what was about to happen. For the first time, God was including them in this judgment and they had to respond in faith. If not, they would pay a deadly price. And it says here, Now the blood shall be for a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I thought about this. Who's the sign for? The sign's not just for them. And you can say, well, the sign is for the, the death angel that's coming through, so the death angel knows not to go there. I, I got that. But, but it's symbolic, he said. This sign is for the other people. This sign is so the other people would know they trusted and obeyed. So the next morning when they got up and their house was okay, they would look at the doorposts and they'd be like, wow, they were saved because they trusted and obeyed. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I shall strike the land of Egypt. I got a couple of points and we're done for the day. Point one, our trust and obedience to God saves us from death. I'm not trying to preach works. I know we're saved by faith. I'm not, this is not even about a, in a sense, you earn your right, your way to God. We know that's impossible. But your responsibility as a believer is to trust God. God is good, he's faithful, he's kind, and you always are challenged to trust him more and more. Trust is the platform for love and vulnerability. But you find it's difficult to trust God. As I said here, I don't think everybody trusted God. The majority of the people did. But because they trusted and obeyed God, they were saved. I believe this life is really about that. Trusting and obeying God. You're like, Pastor Baz, what do you preach on every week? Trust and obey it. <laughs> Trust and obey. I mean, I, I say read your Bible. Spend time with God for yourself. Understand what God's voice sounds like because God will speak to you. And what God says to you won't be what he says to me. God told me to go to Minnesota. You're already in Minnesota. God can't tell you to go to Minnesota because you're here. He might tell you to go to Wisconsin. 
<laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I did that for dramatic effect, you know. He may tell you to retire in California. He may tell you to go out to Seattle. He may tell you to go to Africa, Iraq. I don't know where God wants you to be, but you have to hear God's voice and obey it. Your relationship with God is yours alone. No one else can help you with it. We can support you. We can come alongside of you and encourage you in your relationship with God because that is primary in your walk. But you have to get to a point where you can hear him, trust him, and obey him. If you're like, I don't know what God's voice sounds like, open up your Bible and read. Read it. And eventually you'll understand God's attitude and dispositions, his likes, his dislikes. You'll know more about God. And when you understand what the word says, do it. Because ultimately it's about bowing your will to God's. Next point. Why do we need to know this? So that we can trust that God has made a way to save humanity. As you learn how to trust God and obey him, your life becomes more and more on display. And as people see you going, man, y'all see, man, you're getting real religious. <laughs> I see you going to church more and more. What's going on with you? Are you okay? You're not one of those Christians, are you? As you become more and more engaged, as God becomes more and more real, you get attention. People begin to look at your life. And as people see you, they're trying to see, is this real? Not just when things are good, but when things aren't so good. How will you respond to God? Is it good enough to be faithful when things don't go the way you want? Is it good enough to be faithful when things go exactly the way you want? Whether pleasure or pain, is God good enough to trust and obey? What do we need to do? Trust that God has made a way to save you from death. And obey his instructions that will keep you protected. I remember when I first got my driver's license. And I was talking to my mom. I didn't have car insurance. And my mom was like, well, you, you got your license. Good job. But you don't have car insurance. I'm like, mom, I don't need insurance. I'm the best driver in the world. I was good on pole position, right? I was like, I would always win pole. None of y'all know that's too old for you guys. That's okay. It's all right. I was like, man, I, I got a driver's license now. My mama's hindering me. She won't let me go out and drive. She thought, she thought I needed protection. I'm like, I don't need no protection. I don't need no insurance. I, I'm not going to go and just intentionally hit somebody. I'm not the bad guy. I'm the good guy. Finally, I got my insurance. And on the very day I got my insurance, the very day, y'all, the very day, I'm driving behind a car too closely. And they suddenly, out the blue, hit their brakes. And I didn't think they would hit their brakes right there, right? They did. And I go careening in the back of the car. Bang! And all of a sudden, I'm like, I can't believe it. I hit them. Ah, I can't believe it. And now in my mind, I'm like, it wasn't really that bad. But I still had an accident on my first day. So I get home, and I have to tell my mom, mama, 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 because you didn't have, I didn't have cellular phones at the time, so this was a long time ago. Don't laugh at me. I'm just trying to say I didn't have it. So I had to wait to get home and tell her, I, I, um, I, I hit a car from the back. She's like, okay. Well, you got insurance. It's okay. I said, oh, she said I wrote in my face. Uh -huh. She's trying to say she's right and I'm wrong. Well, they actually called and tried to say I totaled the car. I mean, this car was so old and so rusty. But thankfully, there was insurance because they had to actually get it looked at, take pictures. They're like, man, that car is bad. You don't get no money. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. But from that point forward, I, I took my mom's admonition more seriously. She knew I needed safety. God knows you need safety, too. And we find safety in obeying God. That's our protection. That's where we find comfort. But we step outside of God's will and try to do it our own way, 
It's like you're on your own. You're without protection. You're without covering. So why do we need to do it? We need to do it to be saved from the destruction that is coming. There's a term in the Bible that says we are children of wrath. Whether we know it or not, every single person born is born into sin. And the consequences of being born into sin is that we have to be judged. God is just and righteous. And because he's just, he can't just look past sin. He has to punish it or he be corrupt. But thank God for the lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said it. There he is the second time. There's the Lamb that takes away the sins of this world. That's our protection. See, God punished Jesus Christ. He punished him for us. He took our place. We don't have to be punished. We don't have to be worried about the angel of death coming and taking us out. We don't have to worry about judgment because of Jesus' selfless sacrifice. We're okay. Place your confidence in God. He has worked this out. It's not a coincidence. This is a specific, detailed plan. God is trying to show you he loves you. All you have to do is trust and obey. How can I help you remember? The lamb was murdered so that you could live. Jesus Christ's life was taken so that you could have life. That's what this is really about. Honestly, my health is important, but that's not what this life is about. My security is important, but that's not what this life's about. My hot, beautiful, attractive wife is important, but that's not what this life's about. It's about life. One day, we all will stop breathing. Because of the slain lamb, we have a promise that we will wake up and never die again. It's not just too good to be true. It's ultimate truth. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We crave eternity. I cannot wait for the time when I see you through heaven's eyes on the other side of the Jordan, as they used to say back in the day. In eternity, where I can Shake your hand and say, hello. Do you remember me? My name was Anthony Emmanuel Bass. And you'll say, hello. I remember you. And I'm going to say, we made it. We're here. It was all true. God is really that good. It was worth every sacrifice. He's really a good God. He had our best interest in mind the whole time. And even though we didn't understand what we were going through in life, thankfully we trusted and obeyed Him. And we ended up here in God's presence for eternity. So remember, judgment is coming. But it doesn't have to come for you. There was a price paid for this freedom we had. The Lamb, Jesus, paid it for us. And God challenged the people of Israel. He's like, I know you don't know me well, but look at what I've done. And today here, some of you may be saying, oh, I don't know God that well. But look at what he did. He sent his son to die. He died and was resurrected for your freedom. 
understand the world is in turmoil right now. Your life may be in turmoil right now. There may be things you have ought against God about. Dreams that maybe not have been fulfilled. Disappointments that may have happened. You may be waiting on God to keep his word. But he's worthy to be praised. He gave his very best. And this is a gift that just keeps on giving. His name is Jesus Christ. Can we pray? Father God, thank you this day for the Lamb, for Jesus. Lord God, we don't claim to be any better, Lord God, than any of those people back in the day, Lord God, who had to trust and obey you, Lord. We just want to be found faithful. Lord God, you did all the work, Lord. You did it all. All we have to do is trust you. And we ask you right now, in this day and this time, Lord God, help us be found faithful too. In these last days, Lord, help us trust you. Help us continue to put you first. Help us surrender to your will. Help us give you glory. Help us fall in love with you more and more each day. You do that, Lord God, we'll be sure to give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, is there anyone here today that you have not placed your trust, your hope, your confidence in Jesus Christ? If you're here today, you haven't. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want you just really quickly to raise your hand and put it down and I'll pray for you. Is there anyone here? Is there anyone here today that you've walked away from the Lord? You've been disappointed. You're like, no, nah, no, nah, that's not for me. And now you're like, wait a minute, that is for me. You want to come back to him. You know, he's like this awesome father who's waiting there for you right now. He's willing to accept you back. If you're here today, you walked away, you want to come back to the father. He has no special requirements except that you just come back. Is there anyone here today you want to return to the Lord? I want to pray for you, and then we'll be released. Father God, I ask you, Lord God, to bless each and every soul here. Help us, Lord God, to grow in confidence, Lord. Help us, Lord God, not fall, faint, or fail, but help us stand. Help us do what it is that gives you glory and honor. Lord God, as we continue, Lord, to trust you, Lord God, continue to draw us closer to you. We want more of you and more. The only place we want to, to be, Lord God, is with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming to worship with us this morning. If you have not signed up for our Passover Friday, please come and have a free meal on the house. Bring some people with you who are interested about how God has worked out our salvation. Before you leave, can you give somebody a high five, a handshake, a hug, and tell them, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord Jesus Christ, our King, turn his face towards you. Give you peace. Amen. You'll be blessed. This has been a presentation of Endurance Church. For more about the ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash endurancechurch. And like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash endurancechurch.tv. Remember to live well and finish strong.